This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. Once again, folks, you've got the DLR Cast, the only podcast by and for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. As always, I'm Steve, along with my good friend, the journalist, private investigator, and also author, Darren Paltrowitz. Darren, what's happening, man? Steve, it is a pleasure to be connecting on this Saturday, aside from everything we've seen in David Lee Rothland over the last 48 hours. How are you doing? I'm good. So a little bit, a little bit of behind the scenes kind of behind the scenes of a podcast sort of thing. So Darren and I have been trying to do a first of all, let me back up a bit. If you don't know, you should know, and I'd be surprised if you don't know, but Darren's got a fantastic new book that just published, uh, How David Lee Roth Changed the World. I'm sorry, DLR book, How David Lee Roth Changed the World. Either name is fine by me. I, I've noticed some of these interviews, they don't say the DLR book and they just say How David Lee Roth Changed the World. And I'm like, you know what? That's actually a better title than DLR book. <laughs> so I, don't, I never correct people over that. <laughs> so everybody here should know this book is out. Of course, uh, thank you. We've been talking about it for a while, but one thing we've been trying to do is actually have an actual conversation about the book. Uh, shameless self promotion aside, come <laughs> on, this is a fantastic book. Thank but before you. we got there, we're able to do this. Of course, there's been a myriad of David Lee Roth podcast news, which has just been nuts. So the episode before this. For those of you who've listened, of course, we had that Popsicle Sam episode that we broke down, which was yeah. frankly just mind-boggling and stunning. And then 24 hours after that, we got another <laughs> we got another Dave podcast, this time uh, basically all about the Sportsman's Lodge, which I've stayed in once before many, many years ago. Did you? Did, did not see any of the things that Dave, <laughs> David Lee Ross saw. Of course, this was the early part of the 21st century, so far, uh, far be it for me to, to, to not believe uh dave's stories about that place but the stories yeah, uh, and once again the stories about eddie just make or make me of all things puzzled cringe just sad yeah, at times yeah so you know rather than getting way too into the weeds of that because i i'm happy <laughs> to talk about the book and i also have what i think is a really funny quick story to share about one of our prior guests but um in after this posted, I was disheartened like you. And then I reached out to my David Lee Roth insiders, people who've worked with him within the last 15 years. And they're saying some of the stuff he's saying in this episode, not factually true. The timeline is off. For example, when Ed hosted the infamous porn party in his backyard, uh, he and Dave were not in touch. Right. Right. So, you know, he I, I have this feeling that Dave is conflating timelines. He's he's remembering things incorrectly, like he is the creation of the Frankenstrat guitar. And I don't think you're allowed to call out Dave about that stuff and keep your job. No, no. I mean, I guess the bigger thing is, and we've talked about this enough already, but it's just the what is the purpose of doing this, airing this dirty laundry? It makes zero sense to me. And no sense. And, and no sense. And like we were talking about the other day, a lot of this stuff is public knowledge, liberties with the timeline or not. It uh, it just makes zero sense. And there there can't be any positive endgame to this. No, the, the only positive thing that I could think about is let's say our buddy Dave needed some money and he was going, hey, this is my new book. I'll get a two to five million dollar advance because there's demand for a book for me to talk about Van Halen and all that. Well, save this for the book, dummy. Uh, the, the, okay, 
the wife and I were talking about this a little bit ago, and I was looking at his YouTube channel, and him doing the stupid dancing to New Sensation by NXS has six times the views that him talking about crap about Eddie does. Read the vibes, dummy. What do they want? They don't want this. They want you soft-shoeing to NXS. Right, exactly. And there's so many other things he could be doing, of course. <laughs> Yeah, if he's gonna if he's gonna put stuff out, one two two other quick points. So as everybody should know, of course, you can uh, hear our podcast on YouTube if you subscribe or visit Darren's Paltrowcast channel, where every episode is up. And I was reading some of the comments there, and you had a good point about uh, you made reference to Howard Stern, and and a couple people were weren't so hard on making Dave making those comments, and a few uh, that he has, and a few people are. But I thought your reference to Howard Stern, if you want to just dig into that a little bit, was apt for don't, people who don't know what that what you were talking about. You honestly have to refresh my memory because you, one, I, one I, of I, our I, YouTube, uh, one of our Twitter comments was, man, you guys are so sensitive. And it's like, <laughs> no, people who worked with Dave are telling right, me. That. Right, right. Now, I, you made reference to the fact, I think, and maybe I could have read it wrong. I don't have it right in front of me, but you were, you kind of said, you know, Howard Stern basically, you know, is always kind of trafficked in this sort of stuff for a long time. And and but I think you said something that this is kind of this really lacks a lot of taste. And I think the bigger thing with all this sensitivities aside is that who it's coming from. You know, it's one thing if people listen, Sammy wrote a book, aired a lot of dirty laundry. You know, yeah. I don't think if I recall, he got way deep in the weeds about uh, Eddie's um, proclivities. No, no. He on, just said, know, hey, on the side he, with Valerie. Yeah. He certainly wasn't there at the wedding. And again, we talked about the other day, too, that. I mean, Noel Monk aired a lot of this stuff too, but it's again, it's it's who the source is, what he's saying, and why, which just really bums me out. Call me sensitive. No, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to call you sensitive because I'm <laughs> even more guilty of that. And so, like, Dave is talking crap in the first one about Valerie Bernelli and her family. And then this one, he's talking crap about Janie Van Halen, who keeps calling Jane. So it's like, okay, so Dave doesn't get along with the wives. We can, we can tell. Uh, shocking. <laughs> Dave, Dave doesn't get along well with the families. Uh, oh, shocking. Dave is not a people person. I think that a lot of people don't really have the perspective of Dave does not have a lot of friends. Dave is kind of like Gene Simmons in that sense that Gene Simmons uh, is known to look at relationships as being transactional. And I mm. like Gene Simmons a lot. As you're wearing a kiss shirt, my friend, while we record this. <laughs> uh, I mean, it fits. So I will wear it this time of year, but you know, I, I want to steer towards the positive. Can, yes. can I can I just stop you in the tracks rudely and say, we'll we'll wait until Dave puts out more garbage. Yes. Yeah. I was going to try to segue away from this because you got a great story and uh, we want to talk about your great book. Well, thank you. And thank you. And it's not that great of a story. It's a pretty decent one. So so long story short, sometimes when you put out a podcast, you go like, who actually hears it? Right. Because Let's say you've got hundreds or thousands of views or whatever. It's not like hundreds or thousands of people reach out. You know, a very vocal 15 to 20 people usually reach out. Sure. These kinds of numbers. It's, and we appreciate that. Yeah, and, and these are wonderful people that I love corresponding with. But somebody messaged me that uh, Frank Meyer was recently on tour in Europe. And when we had Frank Meyer on the show... He was telling stories about his work with Dave and around Dave and how he wouldn't see Dave for years. 
And then all of a sudden he'd be walking down the street and he hears Frankmeyer. And it's <laughs> it's David Lee Roth. You know, that happened at the bowling alley show that ultimately didn't happen. Right. At the Van Halen press conference. Frank Meyer. So um, I think it was Eric from Van Halen News Desk and Booked on Rock who told me this. Frank Meyer was in Spain a couple of days ago and he comes off stage and some guy he's never met before comes up to him and goes, Frank Meyer. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out somebody in Spain does listen to the TLR <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> but, but I'm not and sure. I'm not sure if we're the source of Frank Meyer, but I, we're one of two people that probably. Right, 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 right. Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah, I, that 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 warmed my heart so much. I excitingly had to tell my wife that somebody in Spain knows who we are. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of it's it is very cool, and I say this with so much appreciation too. I mean, when we first started doing this, I never thought one anybody would care. Two, yeah, ever thought that we would have. A, people from outside the u.s care <laughs> you know but yeah. besides romania and spain and australia and i mean it's it really continues to blow my mind three years into this for for sure so you know if, if anything positive comes out of dave going negative <laughs> it's that <laughs> it puts dave in the news and then it makes people google van halen and dave lee roth and you know a small percentage of people go oh there's a podcast about dave i'll listen right. And yeah. then a small percentage of that small percentage goes, I like these two guys picking apart stuff. Right, right. The other thing, too, I was just going to say this, too. The other thing that this podcast has done has made me realize that I'm not the only weirdo out here besides you and I that really spends a lot of time thinking about this sort of stuff and analyzing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of people who I've talked to in everyday life who, they're Taylor Swift fans, but the husband is a Van Halen diehard. There's right. a lot of relationships along those lines. You find that the wife goes, yeah, I, I like the music on the radio. And the husband is like Dave to the grave. Right. There's a lot of split couples <laughs> like that. And when they're in their man cave, they listen to the first six Van Halen albums. And exactly. then they know not to talk about Dave too much around their wife, unlike me. So there you, there go. you go. All right. <laughs> Well, here we go. So my author friend, DLR book, How David Lee Roth Changed the World. First off, I got to say, well, one, again, congratulations to, even you. though, let me also say, if you've, you're listening to this and you haven't checked out the book yet and you're wondering, oh, is this mostly a lot of stuff they cover on the podcast? There's a lot of stuff covered on the podcast, but there's a whole lot more that we've never even touched on on here. So you really dug deep, my friend. And, Thank um, you. and I look at this book as kind of, uh, you know, part biography, part oral history, part kind of, uh, you know, timeline investigatory sort of narrative there. And I guess, first off, why a book? How long did it take to write? And given the unpredictable of most things, Dave, how long did it take you to stop writing and figure out this is where I have to stop? The stoppage came mostly because there's a deadline from the publisher and then there's a, there was a word count maximum. Uh, they said, we don't want any more words than this. And then luckily, after you turn in your manuscript, I, th I think it was about six months later, my, my publisher has worked at a snail's pace of every process of this book. So after they gave me back the manuscript and went, hey, we edited it. Here's a couple typos we found. Here's a couple things you want to change for the formatting. I was able to sneak in some of the stuff from the last, you know, 
the corporate gig, the right, uh, the Cabo uh, private gig he did. I was able to sneak in some updates, the John Five singles that have come out, and update it. If we're up to me, you know, there's so much more I could have put in the book because I got a quote about Dave from Ice T and Chris Jericho and did a Sammy sort of weird interview that we've talked about on this podcast. I could have been writing it for another <laughs> year but because, you know, the Dave story never ends and you never know when it's going to update. So I'm going to say it's about two and a half to three years of interviews that happened organically over time. And then the writing itself was crammed in like really hard to about two months. Uh, I'm a big outliner where I say, what's the end game? End game is a book. Okay, the book has to be this many words. Okay, this many words, what are the chapters? And fortunately, my and this is a long answer, I apologize, but my literary agent as part of the pitch had me do a chapter outline and a, a summary outline. So by doing that and having the first chapter done before I sold the book, it made it a lot easier to write. Got it. Got it. I was just, I want to make sure before, I don't want to forget the fact that, I don't want to forget to mention the fact that the photos in this book are fantastic. They're really cool. Most of them, the majority of them, I'd never seen before. They are really cool. And Kevin Baldus from Lit. Kudos to Kevin. Yeah. They're all recent vintage. So uh, I really, really dig, um, dig the photos there. So like I mentioned, the book is part biography. You're making the case why Dave was and has been so influential. But what I yeah. found really interesting, and maybe this isn't so much of a question as so much of an observation and your analysis on it, the book really kind of picks up on a place where I think a lot of people might argue that Dave's influence, along with certainly his record sales, kind of began to wane. Mm -hmm. But yet, at the same time, you give so many reasons why in here that that you can make the argument the other direction that here's why he's still influential because of all these different things, yeah. whether or not they su were successful or not. And you can question all those choices. They were still made so much of who he is, but also, you know, made him so influential. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. And it, obviously this is way too recent to put it in the book, but I think I've mentioned on this podcast, at least I've talked about it in, in different interviews, but the Jared Leto, 30 Seconds to Mars, launching his tour by scaling the Empire State Building a month or two back. You're telling me that's not at all inspired by Skyscraper and how right. he did the album release that he scaled the Tower Records in L.A. And every night on tour, you know, he would rapple. How do you say that? Rapple? Rappel? Rappel. No. Is it? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Every night when he did the title track to Skyscraper, you're telling me a young Jared Leto, Leto, whatever you want to say his name as, was not inspired by Dave there. Yet you have to look through all this stuff. And the more you think about it, you see Dave everywhere, every genre, every place. He's left an impact. And you don't really realize that until you start writing it all down and putting it all down. Because if you didn't, you'd go, Hey, where's that guy been since 88? You, you could right. do that. Or you could go, man, that guy did nothing in the 90s. And then you go, wait a second. Your filthy little mouth was 94. Vegas residency was 95. The rejoining fallout with Van Halen was 96. The autobiography was 97. DLR Pam was 98. He was always doing something. It's just so 
disconnected. And I right. feel like you have to document it or else people go, yeah, that guy's done nothing. And you, yeah. <laughs> and you bring this up the, in the book as well. A uh, number, number of different times in the interview show this too, is that for all the things that we did see an album, a tour, uh, first off, many of those things were really ahead of their time. A Vegas residency, 20 years before any rockers yeah. were even thinking that, number one. Yeah. Um, so many things that he did that we did not know about until maybe it was out on YouTube himself, like, and you talk about this in the book, that weird Japanese gangster movie, being an, <laughs> being an EMT, right? Yeah. So all these things took up a lot of time, a lot of years, a lot of energy on his part. But yet, and later we did find out about it, and we can kind of goof about some of these things ink the original but yeah you know he was this guy is not a guy who's who's been this guy is not a guy that could ever however you want to call it retire actually no and he's been threatening retirement for so many years <laughs> right. you know that that a little ain't enough video we can argue is the first time the word retirement was ever said and then the book also without spoiling too much in one of his online missive newsletters, because, you know, he had his official website that was really a fan site, but sort of his website. And then there was sort of a newsletter for the official fan site that's the official website. But and he's talking about retirement. And that's the late 90s. So, you know, I, I think that th that old quote where Mick Jagger goes, I don't want to be singing satisfaction when I'm 30. Right. And you got your Pete Townsend, you know, I hope I die before I get old from my generation, which he's singing what he's 23, something like that. I don't think that Dave thought, hey, I'm still going to be singing hot for teacher when I'm 60, let alone almost 70. Yeah. You know, I've often thought about this in the book. So many points in the book mention this, and especially when uh, you got into the crazy from the heat movie that didn't happen. And yeah. that is, I often wondered if he regretted leaving Van Halen. Oh, but he doesn't spread 20,000% yes. And I still don't believe he left Van Halen. I believe that he was fired just due to miscommunication. And after I wrote this book, so many insiders have reached out to me people who worked with him, people who just have stuff they shouldn't have. And there's this document that people have that they shouldn't have about what's called the quote, final David Lee Roth and Van Halen shows. It's this memo of a show that was going to happen in the Pasadena area with the budget spelled out. Like it's not something that people Photoshopped. It's a real thing. This is at the end of the 1984 tour. Uh, after that. Yeah. After but in that. the same time frame. Yeah. So I think that I can only surmise that they were going to do a fake. This is the last show kind of thing, which is also decades before people were doing fake last shows. Like the Who did their fake farewell shows in what, 82, 83? <laughs> yeah, it was, you're right. It was 80, it, it was 82. And then um, they come back in 89 to do Tommy. Yeah. Which is the, the first of many comebacks. <laughs> I think the Stones farewell tour was Steel Wheels, or at least because Bill Wyman was quitting. They're like, this is the last tour. And then you had a whole generation of fake farewell tours that kicked off right. from, from there on where every tour could be the last one. But I, I believe in my heart of hearts, Dave did not quit Van Halen. Dave was let go to Van Halen due to miscommunication because same thing happens with Sammy. Sammy's going, they fired me and they're going, you quit. And Sharon didn't know that he was gone. And Mitch Malloy, he sounds like he quit 
but due to a miscommunication where he didn't know that they're doing the VMA appearance with Dave. And the mystery is still out with Sharon when he was gone. And then there's all the mystery about Dave possibly coming back in the early 2000s, but it fizzling out. And then Sammy ended on a bad way. You know, as much as I'm defending Eddie's memory with these recent Dave podcasts, it sounds like the Van Halens have a history of not telling people they're hired and fired. Yeah. And I was just thinking as well, and it reminds me of, of something you say in the book is that that Dave appears to remember everything, emphasis and, ital- and italicize everything. Yet there's a ton of revisionist history, which yes. has gone on for decades, which you cut through in the book many, many times. Yeah. And people have been mad. When I say people, I'm going to say, you know, I've received wonderful, encouraging, make my day positive feedback from like 80 to 90 percent of the people who read the book. But then 10 to 20 percent of the people go, man, you're calling Dave a liar. What nerve you have? Or, hey, you're putting yourself into the story. What nerve you have? It's like there's a reason why I'm in the story. And that's because Dave would not participate, but I felt this story had to be told and I had to use my resources. So, you know, in terms of calling Dave a liar, he is a liar. He He's a self-serving history rewriting person, but sometimes it's so entertaining and so interesting that you can tolerate it. And then other times it's so cringe-inducing, uh, lack of social grace, lacking of what a good human being would do. So it kind of runs the gamut where sometimes I'll tolerate the lies because it's entertaining. And sometimes I just go, wait, so you're cutting down other people in the process of doing this and I won't take it. It's not cool. It's not what a good human being would do. It's not funny. So with, um, you know, a common thing you'll see in the book is like Dave said it this way in 88. And then on the press tour in 94, He's told it a little differently, but the person who's in the room remembers it entirely different from that. I'm not telling you which one is correct. I'm just saying the truth is probably somewhere in between the old Dave, the new Dave, and the other person. I totally I totally get that. I mean, he's I think when you get to that level and you see this with a lot of a lot of big some of the biggest rock stars of the decades, and and it's I think. In for Dave's generation and the folks just right before him, embellishment, obfuscation. Yeah, your well, own. That was a big history. word. Was, what was that? Obfusc- ob- obfuscation. That I'm in. That is the best thing I've heard today. <laughs> obfuscation. <laughs> embellishment. I mean, it's all that's part the episode part. title, by the way. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I mean, for that generation of rocker coming through into the '80s, you know, yeah. nowadays there's so little kayfabe to use that wrestling ter- term, right? I mean, it was yeah. really all about presenting in any way you could the image that you wanted out there. People said that you were uh, banging groupies left and right uh, for the most part until many decades later, if you would refute it at the same time, you weren't denying that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I, I mean, I it was part the... of, it was part of manufacturing that, I mean, Dave manufactured an amazingly influential and amazing image. I mean, I was thinking about this just a minute ago uh, when you were talking about his influence. That is, if if you played hard rock mm-hmm. anytime coming up through the 80s, right? If you played hard rock anytime coming up through the 80s, you were influenced by Van Halen, the band. But you were as, and, and certainly if you were a guitar player, you were 
almost everybody was influenced by Eddie. But yes. from stage moves to vocally often, especially if you were more of a melodic sort of rock sort of thing, I'm, you were influenced by Dave, whether or not you wore a pair of tights or not. Do you know what I mean? And I if mean, you were a blonde front man, you know, yes, there's Robert Plant and Roger Daltrey, but if you were a blonde front man, that itself was probably in, inspired by Dave. A lot of our favorite blonde front men were bottle blonde front men. <laughs> so that on they loved the the banter. Uh, people were not dancing so much before him. People were not smiling on stage before them. You know, yes, the the Beatles smiled at the beginning, but not a lot of rocking, smiling bands on stage. It was more of a brooding thing. The other thing is nobody, but nobody did the moves and the stuff that he did on stage and was still able to uh, able to sing. I mean, going off the drum riser, the kicks. I mean, they if you watch some of those old Van Halen videos and to a point up through Eat Him and Smile. And that's kind of where that sort of athleticism really ended for me, I think. I, I think it was visually you saw this, it sort of ended and everybody gets older, but I mean, they came charging out of the blocks like a fucking football team. I mean, they were Van Allen, those uh, with, with Dave, I mean, he's, you just went out there and you were going to, you, they were going to force you <laughs> athletically and visually and mm-hmm. via the music to in, enjoy this. And do you get what I'm saying? I mean, there was so much horsepower, I think, really led by Dave. I mean, somebody needs a driver, right, to, to harness all that and to pull it all together and present it. And I think what he did, nobody had ever did before when you, with those with Van Halen. With Van Halen. And then when you look at the Eat em and Smile tour video, bootleg video kind of stuff, about the running side-to-side Steve Vai, Billy Sheen, bass solo, guitar the, solo competition right. thing. You had to be in shape to do that. Yeah. Uh, in general, um, there, there's this part of the show when they do Hot for Teacher where um, the band drops out and then they do kind of an acapella thing, which Van Halen never do. So in other words, that Eat em and Smile tour was boot camp for every single member of his band to go like, look, they're even more athletic than Van Halen, even more vocally talented than Van Halen. That's him going, I've got the better band and check this out. Right. You got it. uh, Condolences to all of them to having to go through that. (laughs) (laughs) Think big guys. We got to present this to 20,000 people every night. And it's not, we're not, not just the front row. And yeah, it's so the athleticism, there's not a lot of athletic rock bands in in my humble opinion. I'm not just talking about like thin or or muscular or all that. Like the members of Rat, who like always looked cool and all that, they didn't really do a lot. Stephen Piercy was kind of like a in his in his like eight feet box and right. all feel good tonight. And yeah, Brett Michaels has always been in shape. Maybe ran around a little bit. Okay, yeah. Steven Tyler would do cartwheels and and flips and all that. I get that. But Dave took it to a new level and did right. it long term. And so you go, okay, blonde frontman, athletic band. You know, they, they were different on those ends beyond the music, beyond the lyrics, beyond all that. So a couple of people looked at this book and went, Dave Lee Roth changed the world. <laughs> what an idiot this author is. And you go... 
Van Halen was one of the early MTV bands. Dave was one of the early MTV artists. Did early MTV change the world? Yes. That alone changed the world. Right. And Dave was one of the biggest, biggest MTV artists and superstars precisely because of the visual appeal and what he did. And... Yeah, you know, and the wit, of course. I mean, those 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 videos still make me laugh to this very day. And and, and piggybacking on all of that, I look at Van Halen in a lot of ways as being an, ex- an extension of what the Beach Boys kind of started. Where when you think of of Southern California, you don't think of the high crime rate and all the problems. You think of the sun, the surf, the girls, the parties, sure. that kind of a thing even when you can think of the crime and the earthquakes and the helicopters going above at two in the morning with the spotlight, trying to find the perp that's, that's going (laughs) and, and you know, the phoniness, you don't think of that. You think of, this is where the movies are made. You know, you think of the back lots uh, from the, just the gigolo video and the beach from the California girls video and the hot for teacher kind of humor that's what you think of. And the Beach Boys were not surfers. Like the the only Beach Boy who surfed was Dennis Wilson. Dennis, sure. Yep. Yeah. Uh, exactly. which, which is tragic and ironic based on how he his his demise. But they didn't surf, yet they were the poster boys for surf. And Van Halen kind of became the, the poster boys for this lifestyle that they were not necessarily living and this whole Los Angeles surfer dude California thing that they weren't really living. And so we think of, or at least I think of L.A. a certain way that it's not at all, but we can thank them for ch- helping to change the the thing. And also one more thing on top of how we change everything. Yeah, L.A. gave the world the doors and some great bands but why did every band move to the sunset strip to try and make it van halen right it, but, exactly yeah yes motley crew but why did motley crew do it because of van halen so there's your how david lee roth changed the world i love it all right so one of the one of the things that really stood out to me in this book is there's parts that are just hilarious where I had to really laugh out loud, either the way you present it oh, or, you. or in this happened quite often in many of the interviews. And so I want to get into the interviews because there's a lot of people that we've had here on the DLR cast, but a lot that aren't, that have not been, but I just to stand, just to kind of highlight a couple of folks that I thought were so enlightening uh, and where the interviews were great and what they put forth for the book was that you put in the book was fantastic was Mitch Snyder. And oh, I yeah. think maybe the best, inter- my favorite interview might've been Steve Rochelle of tough. <laughs> <laughs> if you will, please elaborate on those. <laughs> uh, well, you were on the line for Mitch Snyder. Sure. Yep. Thankfully. And Mitch is a friend. Uh, oftentimes publicists will put up this wall that you never get beyond. Hey, is that person available for interviews? Yeah, sure. Tuesday too. Yeah, that's great. Here's the article. Thank you. Hope you're well. Have a nice weekend. Most publicists, you never get beyond that wall. And Mitch and his wife, Renee, like, we're we're friends. They are wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people. And in other words, they're able to go, okay, 
publicist wall down. I'm a human being and I will be a human being in front of you. So, you know, there were a couple of times where beyond the book, I'd go, hey, Mitch, can I ask you a real Dave question? He'd go, yeah, sure, whatever. You get two. No, no, after these two, no more Dave questions. <laughs> there, there was one dinner we had in Vegas where I think he he told me I can ask two questions and then we have to go back to normal human being stuff. <laughs> and, and I don't think I put this in the book, but Mitch uh, worked with Dave again, early 2010s, and it only lasted a couple of days. And the reason I asked, I mentioned that is there's a few different publicists that I've spoken with since I've made the book. They, they went, yeah, I, I, uh, Dave came back to me and we worked together for a couple of days. Like that's a recurring thing where he goes, yeah, you're hired. And then he talks to you or you talk to him and then you realize, this is not a fit. And then you're so, done and he goes so, elsewhere. So it's not an ad hoc thing. I need you for I need you for two weeks to put it to services press release. No. And what comes it, from that? It just Inter blows up. And Interesting. Yeah. The the reason why Mitch and Dave did not work together in the 2010s is bizarre. <laughs> I'll, I'll just put it this way. Mitch is one of the best publicists in the history of the entertainment business. Mark my words. Roth, Bowie, Ozzy, Aerosmith, Nugent. You're like Nugent in his respectable or more respectable periods. All artists with huge and deservedly, and this is not a shot, but huge, huge egos, hugely and, successful. The, and right? the Power Trip Festival, the one that just had ACDC and Iron Maiden, Mitch and his team were that. And Mitch and his team, which Marcy and Kelly and Andrea, they're still handling top people. You know, the Osbournes have depended on them for more than 30 years. Aerosmith, I think, was 20 to 30. Hart, I think, was 20 to 30. These people work with Mitch and his team long term because they can trust them. They're going to offer great insight. And so I have nothing but great things to say about Mitch in general and whether or not he actually hears this. But the <laughs> the other one you mentioned, Stevie Rochelle from Tough, you know, people didn't realize, I guess, the first 10 years or maybe a little less of metal sludge that that was him behind metal sludge. So he had this perspective of being an eighties hairband guy that, you know, found his success early into the nineties got dropped and people are like, hey, check out that has been, but the reality was he was one of the news sites and news sources for all your favorite bands. You want to know what's going on with skid row. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. You would, I, was, I was wedded to Metal Sludge for years. You would go to Metal Sludge to find out the exclusives. And then on top of that, Stevie's always has these always has these amazing side hustles that you don't realize are him. Like the Green Bay Packers themed rap group Cheeseheads with Attitude, CWA. <laughs> and he always has these pickup band tours for Tough where it's like, I want to tour Brazil. You guys can learn the songs. You are tough in brazil and he had kind of a steel panther metal school before it was steel panther metal school just an entrepreneurial dude so yeah he told me some dave strip club stories and how people think that he is like a david lee roth clone but he started off as a skater who liked punk rock yeah i just found found that interview really fascinating at times funny and just really enlightening too i mean he totally gets dave I'm and I taped that one over Skype audio from a hotel room during a work trip. <laughs> and I think I asked for a late checkout 
um because like stevie could only talk at this one particular time so it's you know it's now or never with stevie so i got it and i thanked him and i asked him to read it over or listen to make sure it was fine and he didn't get back to me i told him the book was out he didn't get back to me <laughs> so i've i've no idea if he's super proud or pissed but i i'm a big stevie rochelle guy i'm an original sludgeaholic and i think I don't know if this is public. I think I sent the second VHS tape that Mitch Schneider's team sent me in the early 2000s to Metal Sludge of No Holds Barbecue. Oh, really? <laughs> so I think I'm the person that let them talk crap about No Holds Barbecue. <laughs> oh, you're the guy. <laughs> I, I'm pretty damn sure I sent it to a P.O. box in Gary, Indiana, which was their old like co-editor's place. Sure. And it's my fault that they talked crap about No Holds Barbecue. Wild. Exclusive. So, is, <laughs> so when you mentioned the, the number of publicists that Dave had going so many times, it reminds me, and you really dig into this in the book, and I want to lean into it a little bit here, and that is Dave is very demanding. Yes. Knows what he wants. No. Uh, and I... <laughs> no, he or at least he did in many times, right? He I did. mean, there were times, but I, I thought of this that he's often really hard to work for. Yes. But uh, at least in the book, for the most part, very hard to work for, but always ending up, for the most part, pretty great to work with, even if it was his way or the highway. Do you get what I mean? I mean, for all the people who say he was very demanding in the book, also said, you know, very kind things about what, and we've talked about this on the podcast too, very kind things to say about what it, the working relationship was with. I think in certain years, that's yes. The, well, there should I be think, a caveat that the last five years have been very odd for all I'm, things. Dave. I'm not. No, I, I'm going to take you to the mat on that one <laughs> because the number of people filled me with things after this book. Uh, I think that everything was a okay in Dave Land in the Pete Angelus era because he had that great co-pilot. Uh, sounding board that was pete angelus who remained successful as a manager decades later i think everything ran smoothly in the matt sensio era from the public standpoint but i think that between angelus and sensio i think it was a mess under the eddie anderson realm mm. and then i can't figure out the exact year him and sensio stopped working together i know it was into the van halen reunion but after that Things got messy. So I'm going to say things have been messy for at least 12 years in Dave land. And somebody told me that but there was a manager in place before Jerry, who's now the current person that we don't really know about. That you know how when Kiss parted ways with Bill Alcoyne, that a lawyer tried to take over the management. And then right. I think one of those happened with Dave. So there's still people in the background. There's this Kieran person who told me he was going to speak to me for the book and then kind of vanished. There's all sorts of hidden managers in the background we're finding out about. Re really interesting, to say to say the least. And it makes me think now that, especially reading the book, and you you talk about the Van Halen reunion in the book, of course, back in 2007, and the, the reunion that, Thanks to Frank Meyer, Frank nobody Meyer. knew Frank Meyer. Nobody knew about in two thousand five. Yeah, I, it, I, don't, I still don't know if it's two thousand or two thousand two, but yeah, it's early two thousands sure. about the the 
reunion that Frank told us about that we still don't officially know about. Well, Sorry to correct g- given what you were just talking about, it really makes me think more that what what a miracle it was that Van Halen got back together for the 2007 tour, the subsequent album, the you know touring through 2015, and that I think Irving Azoff's efforts were damn near Herculean. I think to yes. to keep all that together, <laughs> right? And I also believe that the when that contractually there was so much that kept Dave under wraps for that reunion to happen. Contractually, in other words, I mean, yeah, we've talked about yeah. this before. There was he, there was no interviews. Do you know what I mean? There was certainly, I mean, for him to even, I just think that there was a lot that they they all signed off on to keep the peace. Okay, so I'm gonna say something that I, I'm trying to think of how to carefully say this and say allegedly six times. <laughs> Because in the thing that Dave put out yesterday about the Sportsman Lodge, he's talking about Janie Van Halen. She goes, uh, she gave him a haircut. She got him a shave. She got him new teeth. She cleaned his act up. And the timeline is super conflated about that because Eddie was a mess in the 2004 Sammy tour. Mm -hmm. Which Sammy goes into in his autobiography. And Eddie was a mess and i'm not being heartful i'm just saying he ultimately cleaned up his act and was good for the rest of his life as far as we know and healthy and functioning and and great to work with and not dealing with demons so much but on the 2007 era uh the first photo shoot there's a reason why he's wearing sunglasses and a hat and is kind of he he wasn't at a hundred percent yet so when Dave is going and she cleaned up his act and blah, no, he still had years ahead after meeting Janie of being troubled and dealing with his demons. So I'm wondering, and this is this is a guess, if one of the reasons that they were quiet and not doing a media blitz was always not well, that it was a business arrangement of sorts. That meaning the getting back together was, okay, let's get Ed some money. Um, let's meet the demand of people do want to see Dave and before he's too old and before the fan base is too old, et cetera, let's do that. But at the same time, you had the Ed going, but I want to be with my son because this divorce has taken me away from my son to a large extent. So in other words, you, it probably was so many things that Irving Azoff, you could, you could call Irving Azoff a saint for making this one happen. Right. Because right. you can't imagine what he was dealing with and no one ever says nice things about Irving Azoff, but without Irving, we probably would never have gotten a reunion. I don't think I, uh, yeah. Who, who else I, could have I, done I, that? Doc McGee, maybe, maybe, but it's Irving doc. You have your Mount Rushmore of music industry managers that could uh, rob the public, rob live nation or AEG and then make everyone else happy in the process. <laughs> By everyone else, I mean the band, and that's it. Right, right. Good point. Um, a couple other things about the book and the things you shed light on. One of them, uh, Dave's um, number of trademarks taken and the company he's formed. And 
this is going to seem like kind of a dumb question, but I mean, why do you think he does this? So, I mean, I get it if there's a, there's an actual business plan and this is what we're going to do and I'm going to go forward with this, this, and this. Yeah. But most of the time it's not. To me, it's like, oh, I better trademark. It's like kind of a blank. It's, it, to me, it looks like it's very much a, uh, very much kind of a spur of the moment sort of, I got this idea, let's do it. At least trademark it. Right. Why do you think he does this? The, to, to pull back before I get into that answer, these days, people will say that they have different mental illnesses just as a conversation self-deprecating point. They'll be like, oh, because I'm so OCD, blah, 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 blah. No, no, OCD is a real thing. Oh, man, I'm so ADHD. No, that that is a real thing. Or, oh, because I'm on the spectrum and, you know, because I'm super autistic. <laughs> no, that is a real thing. And I do think that some of that exists in Dave. And so I think he's always creating, he's always thinking, and because money is not a concern for him, whether or not he's floating in it, he'll spend it, and more will come in no matter what. He goes, I got an idea. I got a lawyer who'll file it. Okay. And that's why he files these, these trademarks, and then he abandons these trademarks. You know, the general public, I don't think, understands the trademarking process where you first have to file it and then, you know, including what categories you're going to use it in. It's not like you can go, okay, um, uh, Steve Roth ice cream. Yeah. Steve Roth ice cream for what? Is it a food product? Is <laughs> right, it merchandising? Right. Is it a slogan? What is it? And you have to demonstrate the artwork or a sketch of how it works. You have to do that. Then later on, you have to demonstrate that it's actually in use. Like you can't just squat uh, trademark squad or IP sure. squad. You have to show it's there. Then there's follow-up paperwork. And if you're doing this through a Dave level LA lawyer, it's thousands of bucks at a time. So I think he's happy to first spend a couple of thousand dollars to get it into action, say that he's done it. Then I think after all, he goes, nah. And then he does what's called abandoning your trademark. So the list of abandoned trademarks is huge. <laughs> it's 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 really long. I think what was that was abandoned, yet he's still using that as his record label name. So I don't know how legal that is to abandon a trademark and then keep using it. But it's I there could be a whole book about Gene Gene Simmons trademarks, Dave trademarks, maybe two. Right. Right. So there's three things that really stand out, three portions of the book, I should say, kind of the overarching thing here is just how much how much I learned, how much I knew, I I thought I knew regarding that time period pre-2007, pre-Van Halen reunion, where the musical output, commercially at least, was slow, non-existent. Right. But all you sh but there was so many other things going on and and there's three highlights to me in the book. One that that really stood out to me. One, you dig deep into his his um, replacing Howard Stern, which yeah. not, which is an oxymoron. No one can replace Howard Stern. But really, what went into that? How hard he worked at it. That's and 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 how CBS management did did him no favors. No, it was in the that, same people that screwed Howard Stern when he was right. On. Right. Yeah, so that's on. so yeah. that's that's number one. Uh, number, number two is you really go into a lot about, um, about 
um, and I'm losing my train of thought here. Sorry. I go back into the no holds barbecue time time era and just what what that was all about. And the third thing is from is musically your interviews with Brian Young and Rain Luzier, the two people who were in the band for such a long time, really shed a light about his process as far as they didn't make music together, but as far as present just everything from the rehearsals to what the shows are like to the to the set list, that sort of thing. Yeah. Not so much a question, but again, another observation. And I well, thank please, you. Please elaborate on that stuff because it really did open my eyes to a lot of a lot of things. Thank you. That the Dave, the dark, questionable era of Dave of 2000 to 2005, before he rejoins Van Halen, I love that era. Love. Actually, we let's say 99 so we can endlessly talk about the Finland MTV concert. Yes, your favorite I, concert. <laughs> I was watching it again last night. I love that concert. I really appreciate that era of Dave because he's willing to do the Van Halen hits He's willing to do the Van Halen deep cuts. He's willing to do the solo hits. He looks great. He is sounds great. He's singing great. He's doing the kicks, uh, but not to the point embarrassing uh, embarrassment. He's not doing the alternate vocal melodies. Um, And he's okay. Publicly facing is different than how he is behind the scenes, but publicly facing, he's not an egomaniac. There's some modesty in what he's doing, because I think he's seen how No Holds Barbecue flopped, how Diamond Dave, the album flopped, and how D.O.R. band flopped. So I think he kind of has the realization of, okay, everyone knows who I am. Everyone knows these hits, but I'm a club or theater or festival artist. I can't do amphitheaters or arenas. I need help. So he has Matt Sensio, who... And I don't talk about this in the book. People know that Matt was Dave's manager, but they don't know that he was Dave's bass tech. He worked his way up from bass tech to kind of an assistant to kind of manager. And I think under Matt's control, Dave has handled like the best classic rock artists you've ever seen, ever, 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 and not hyperbole, because you've got this guy who can deliver the goods, looks cool, is entertaining, has the hits. Like if David Lee Roth plays a 90-minute set, it's it's all hits, and he's got the best backing band possible. Right. Because I'm a big fan of Luzier and, and Brian Young and James Lomenzo, who's back in, in Megadeth. The Dave after that, I just can't get behind on any level. It's I love the first Van Halen reunion tour, but then he's – He's back to these stupid long stage raps that go nowhere. <laughs> he, he thinks he needs to have 12 jackets and costume changes in the show. It, it's just everything that's wrong with everything to me. <laughs> so, you know, going back to what you're saying, I love this era and it's not documented anywhere. You know, Dave shows a couple of clips from No Holds Barbecue, but never says it's from No Holds Barbecue. Right, right. There, it seems to me that there was a bit more discipline in that era versus what we've seen certainly the last 12, 13 years. To that, yeah. And structure. And that could be the people around them. That also could be just, you know, listen, we everybody everybody changes uh, throughout their lives a different way. Not always, not always for the better. 
and what you think worked for worked for you for a long time suddenly stops working and you might not be you know from an interpersonal standpoint and you don't necessarily realize it's not working anymore right yeah and i got to thinking too about this and that is with the the radio show when i think back to what that show was and and how he conduct himself when you meant you mentioned there was a bit more humility uh, that's what i was taking from what you were just talking about there for a bit a bit more yeah. humility compare that to the interviews the last five or six years and certainly the roth show Do you, right so there's there's a little bit more self-consciousness going on i think back then there was a bit more humility um and i think if people haven't been paying that much attention. Like, oh, it's the same Dave all the time. And that's true Definitely to a degree, not. but that's Definitely true to not. a little bit. The braggadocio to a to a to a degree. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the standard stuff about Van Halen's been your soundtrack for all your summers growing up, that sort of thing. It plays differently now, but it also is differently now. Yeah. I can on my minuscule, minuscule, little tiny level, as a person who's been doing, you know, one to three interviews to promote this book every day for the past few weeks, because, you know, people have been really kind and supportive. After talking about myself for a long period, I do find like you have sort of a, a little bit of a performance high, your judgment is not really there and you have to come down. And so then you go, okay, so now we're talking about somebody who's been doing that for literally 40 plus years, that person, of course, unless they have a great sounding board or support network to begin with, besides any difficulties they may have to begin with, that person's going to be a little bit off. So <laughs> I think just naturally any performer is going to be a little bit off unless they work on themselves to be humble. Mm -hmm. And I think that there were years when Dave his solo career, he was super humbled. I mean, when we had Ron Wixo on the show, you and I, and he was talking about how Dave was in the same tour bus as everybody else on the Your Filthy Little Mouth era. That's humbling. Sure it is. That's humbling to go from you're the guy on MTV and the, the life of the party in arenas mm -hmm. to you're down to clubs and you're in the tour bus. And arguably, he was still doing clubs in 98, 99, 2000, 2001. Sam and Dave tour happens and it's not only tour buses, but something that somebody knows, somebody who was there and knows stuff told me was Dave on the Sam and Dave tour had six security guards. Now I'm sure part of that was putting on a show, but to have the six security guards and the Dom triplets at select gigs and Jimmy, the little person at select gigs, there was a second little person whose name I don't remember. But he goes from shows in beach towns at clubs and like little festivals to I have six security guards. So, you know, the humility. Things are getting very weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know why Sammy, although he can be a little bit of an egomaniac in his own respect, you would know why he would go. I don't want this. I don't want X. No, I don't want more than two security guards. <laughs> so why would you have six security guards? From a business and profit margin standpoint, if you don't you don't spend the money on those things you absolutely don't need. No, so so Dave's never afraid to spend money on things like in this 
podcast from two days ago when he's talking about the $92,000 uh, paid to a dispensary in Los <laughs> Angeles. Whether or not that's actually true or was that like three years and he hadn't paid up, you know, he just kept saying, hey, put it on my tab. He doesn't say if he just bought the next four years of edibles or that's a debt or if that's nine months of stuff or that and sodas. He doesn't say so we don't fully know. He's never afraid of spending money even if it's not going to come back ever like in the original or for a long time, he reinvests in, in himself and the character, which is great. But again, he goes from everyone is in the same bus to with in less than a decade, I have six security guards. Right. It's, and I, I didn't put that in the book. That's just something that somebody told me who knows what they're talking about. And you go, the humility w was not there on the Sam and Dave tour. And I get it. And I, and reason why for that is he needed to look to everybody, not just the band's general public, but all the way down to Sammy's crew and band that he was the bigger rock star. He did it completely in the wrong way. Yeah. In the, in the wrong way. And, and, and it was, and it was, when you think of it, it's very tone deaf to the times back then. And, and so many times can still be today. Um, yeah, again, and, and that's the sort of thing where so many times in his career where, uh, you know, that's just kind of a, um, a, a small glimpse of that where there could have been different directions, different avenues to take that could have been a lot more profitable. And, and, and by the way, if I'm wrong and it was four security guards, <laughs> six, I'm so sorry. But the key is you don't ever need more than two security guards unless you're the president or you have a lot of FBI death threats on you, you know, that kind of a, a thing. Six security guards on top of, or four even, in knowing that the venue itself is fully staffed with security and there's cameras everywhere. That is insanity. Yeah, it truly is. All right, yeah. final question for you, my friend. Sure. After all you learned, everything that you put into this book, all the things you learned about Dave, Dave calls you up tomorrow, finds you tomorrow and says, I need a co-writer for the definitive biography of my life. Similar to what Springsteen did whenever 10 years ago, where it was the official biography. Would you take the gig? No. Uh, <laughs> three months ago in a heartbeat, anything to meet Dave and work with Dave. The things that people tell me, no, I can't. No, absolutely. No. And I don't want to ruin him or Van Halen for anybody, but I, I like people who go, I'm going to do this, and then they do it. I like face value kind of communication. I don't like start stops. I don't like people who go, I'm never going to do this again. And then they do that same thing right away. I, I'm just, I'm too old to, to deal with people who are impossible to deal with. <laughs> and I know that that's where the genius comes from, but the, I just would not be able to work with somebody who's not focused, somebody who's unable to admit mistakes. And the Dave of today, Zlozauer has talked about this. Zlo, Neil Zlozauer was super close with Dave for decades. He He's in No Holds Barbecue. And he was the guy who was their primary photographer in the early 80s. But Zlozar was like, yeah, I don't I don't deal with the Dave of today. And they might have recently reconciled. I've heard that a little bit. 
But Dave kind of goes, this is what I need from you. I'm going to get it from you next. And I, I just don't keep people like that around in, in my life. If I'm totally wrong, well, all this is based on people who worked with him in the last 10, 15 years. People worked with him in the 80s. People who worked with him in the 90s. And there's not a lot of people still around that worked with Dave a long time ago. So that's that's the kind of bummer that the music is nothing like the human being. But I'm very proud of the book. And, you know, if all goes well, I would do an updated or revised version in a couple of years, not as a cash grab at all, but to uh, document some of the recent history, some of the new people that have come to light for me, ink the original and, um, you know, not cap it at ninety three thousand words. Right, I was gonna, <laughs> I was gonna say the same darn thing in a in a in a couple of years. There could be a hell of an update updated edition of this book, especially with what come to light in the last oh I don't know, seventy two hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's had that happened while my book was still being written, I would go crap. I I'm not turning in the book for deadline. We have to redo this. It, right, that itself. I'm not saying it's a whole book unto itself, but that's that's 20,000 to 50,000 words right there. Because I, the way that I am, I would then go, who can I speak to from the Sportsman Lodge? Who can I speak to that knows stuff from the adult film industry? I, I, um, there's, some, there's some publicists that I've dealt with who still had their toe a little bit dipped into the adult film industry. Like they're regular functioning people. It's just, they also want that paycheck. Right. The thing is they have their mainstream clients and then their adult film clients. And when I did my Tony Clifton interview like 10 years ago, that was through a guy who did both. So okay. I find out, <laughs> what did you know about Eddie Van Halen? I would want to clarify whether or not this is all true or hearsay. I'd want to dig into that. The Sportsman Lodge, did Dave overstate this about who stays there? Is this true? Um, I'd want to ask Frank Meyer, hey, what were the years that this happened, that you heard the demo, that this, did Dave ever say anything about Eddie? Was it ever positive? Because all these people that I talked to work with Dave in the last 15 years have told me he's never said one nice thing about Eddie before he passed after he passed both it's depressing so i'd want to cover brett tuggle his passing doug short's passing anyone else who's passed i think there's so much meat on the bone for an expanded version but a whole new book no that's that's too not enough there you could you could do a chapter alone on just the podcast if you got a podcast <laughs> in, if you got a podcast insider tom if you're listening um yeah tom is still in the picture i've confirmed that that is he added me back on LinkedIn, but he will not talk to me, and that's fine. But a he few can't. people, I've heard it's a an NDA that people that that has been breached. That's what I've heard. So if people do want to talk, they can talk. They're just a little cautious until their next gig is lined up. Sure, sense. <laughs> understandable, understandable. Well, all yeah. right, my friend. Congrats on the book. It's been fun seeing and reading and hearing uh, the interviews you've been doing for it. And I'm glad we got to really dig into it here. I mean, if we didn't do it here, come on. <laughs> well, and Steve, if there is an expanded edition, uh, you are writing a chunk of it or you are, you are 
going to be a much bigger part of that <laughs> than, than, you know, a few mentions in our, <laughs> in this previous book. So thank you for being a great sounding board and looking forward to everything you're working on as well. Awesome, my friend. To everybody, thanks for downloading, tuning in. Be sure to check out the Paltrowcast at YouTube and uh, where there's new content virtually every day. I don't know how you do it. So, <laughs> Thanks and nothing but yeah. <laughs> Take care. <laughs>